Romans chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charges with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already char charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. Why don't we uh, pray just before we come back to that reading together? Father God, we, we thank you that just as we've sung there, we, we stand having benefited from so much grace we don't deserve. And that really is the message of this book and it's the truth of our lives that we experience that's not just a theoretical thing that's the experience of our lives and Lord, we just thank you for your goodness your graciousness towards us but Lord we recognize that you know we live in a world that is noisy and the problem isn't just the world outside of us it's actually the whole world that goes on within us that Lord we find ourselves so often so distracted by so many other different things and in so many other different directions, Lord. If we're honest, we, we know that, that we find ourselves giving up much time and energy and emotion to other things. And we find ourselves torn and pulled in, in different ways. So Lord, we pray for your help now that you might help us to focus upon you as we've sung as well this morning, that you would be our vision this morning. Lord, we thank you that this book is not just a book. It's not just words amongst other words. But Lord, it's the revelation of you, of who you are, of all that you've done, and who you've made us to be, and, and how you've made us to live. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you might uh, speak through these words to us. That you might breathe life into us and encourage us in our faith and trust in you. So Lord, I pray that you might speak through me now and that you might minister within us this morning. Amen. 
you uh, keep that passage open there, you'll, you'll find that uh, helpful. I wanted to share with you, just as we begin, a little piece from an article here by uh, someone called David Allen. This is an article from CNN's series, The Wisdom Project. The article's entitled, Breaking News Alert, People Are Inherently Good, Nonviolent. This is from 2018. It says, mass shootings, deadly hate crimes, terror, murder, gun violence and war all have their particular details. But each story revives age-old yet urgent questions about who we are as a species. Are people inherently violent? Are some people evil? Can we stop violence? Our answers to these questions are more than philosophical. They influence how we process the world around us making us optimistic or pessimistic, hopeful or scared. When we hear about bad things happening, especially when lives of many are lost or damaged at the hands of a few, we need to remind ourselves that people are generally good. We are hardwired for goodness. It's easier to recognize this fact when you think of children. Without mitigating factors, their innate goodness would not erode with age. But goodness is not the sole virtue of the young. The vast majority of people, when faced with simple, clear, ethical choices, choose good over bad, and even good over neutral. People are inherently good, or so society says. Paul, on the other hand, has been building his argument, and he'll conclude it this morning in this section, and no doubt you'll be fairly relieved because it's been a heavy sort of section, hasn't it, from chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, He's been making this argument of humanity's unrighteousness. And I was sharing with you a few weeks ago that a former professor and indeed principal uh, of Aberdeen University, uh, lecturing in law specifically, used the book of Romans as an example of a sort of flawless case for a prosecution. And that's what Paul has been bringing, that humanity is by nature unrighteous, not good. And so we come this morning to Paul's closing statement. And after this, we'll sort of start to get to some of the good news. This section, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, really could be summarized as saying the bad news, how humanity has made a mess of everything. The next section could be summarized how God makes everything right. But for this morning, Paul will conclude his argument He's first needed to explain why we need saving. What it is that we need saving from. And that all need saving. And so Paul's point here this morning is simply bad news for good people. There's none who's truly good. Looking, he answers here three questions that you notice in these verses here. Firstly, verses one to four. What good is your religion. And you might notice that he's got a bit of a series there, hasn't he, of rhetorical questions that he throws in. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? What if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Four significant rhetorical questions for them, all about what good really is your religion. 
And there's a question mark in people's minds as they've tried to understand these verses. Is is Paul directly addressing an actual opponent here? Does he have someone or some bodies in his mind as he's writing this? Or is this purely a rhetorical thing on Paul's part? What advantage has the Jew, verse 1? Or what is the value of circumcision? The point of chapter 2, 17 to 29 has not been to say that there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. That has not been his point. His point has specifically been to say, just because you are a Jew, just because you have grown up within the people of God, just because you have observed some ritual uh, observances, just because you have heard the teaching of God, that does not make any difference for you in terms of your salvation before God. You're not saved because of those things. That makes no difference to you. But Paul's point has not been to say that there is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And he seems to imagine, and perhaps even has had this direct conversation, but certainly anticipates that someone may misunderstand him and may think that he's saying that there is no difference at all. What advantage has the Jew then? What benefit could be put? Is there at all? What's the value of circumcision? Is there really any point to having followed that? If religion actually becomes a sort of trap where we commit the same sins, we face the same judgment as the irreligious, is there any point in it at all? Verse 2, much in every way. While both are judged the same, Both the Jew and the Gentile, the religious and the irreligious, are judged the same by works. Of course, it's better to walk as part of the people of God. Of course, that would be better to have been part of his family, of his special people, particular nation that God had chosen to work within. And we have a similar discussion, I suppose, if we try to sort of put this... Um, in our own sort of context, within the church. If being in a religious community gains you no favours in God's judgment, simply being part of his people doesn't actually gain you any sort of privileged judgment. And if it's no guarantee that you won't commit the same sins as those who aren't part of it, well, then what's the part of, point of being in at all? Maybe it makes no difference. And yet, of course, it does. And it is better to be near God than to be far from God. Perhaps it's like making a fire. You know, being part of the church does not make you a believer. Of course it doesn't. And wood doesn't start a fire. But once a fire is set, a good pile of kindling sees it go up. God and God alone sets you ablaze in faith. It's God who reveals his son to us. We've heard that this morning from 1 Corinthians 7 to 9, that God reveals his son to us. But the more kindling, the more chance that spark ignites. Community life, catechism, confession, discipleship, theology are not ends in and of themselves. They're kindling with the hope that for people at some point, they'll be set ablaze by the Spirit of God. Of course, it makes a difference to be part of his people, much in every way. 
And oddly, actually, Paul says much in every way, but actually only gives one particular reason here in this particular moment. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He could have given a whole range of benefits, and in other places within the book, he'll do that in more detail. But he stops really with one, and he stops with the most important one. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles. The word there in the Greek is the, is the logia, the logos, the word of God. The same word that John uses at the beginning of his gospel to say that the word was with God, the word was God. Now the word has come and dwelt amongst us. The word of God was entrusted to the people of Israel to the Jews they have had the word of God is self-revelation through which they can know him and find life that is a major major benefit and yet there's a logical problem that Paul picks up here in verses three to four isn't there because even though the people of God the Jews have, have had the word of God not all of them have always lived up to that, And the Old Testament's a historical record of that happening in a whole variety of different ways. And so Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? Because we find that not everybody who's part of God's people there actually live as though they are. Not everybody lives out of that faith and trust in God. In fact, you know, even as they're delivered from Egypt, from slavery and death and darkness in Egypt and brought out, they'll suddenly turn to Moses and say, well, was it just that they were lacking grave space in Egypt that you've brought us out here to die? It really doesn't even take long for them to turn their backs and to turn in distrust of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And Paul's point is, I suppose, does, does the fact that some, even in the light of God's faithfulness, abandon him in faithlessness, does that show God to be weak? Does that nullify his faithfulness? Is somehow there's something lacking about what God does because even though he does live out and work out in all this faithfulness, there are still people that turn away from him. Doesn't that actually show him to be a rather weak God? No, by no means, Paul says. Why? Well, two reasons perhaps we might offer. Firstly, it shows just how great his faithfulness is in him bearing a sinful response from his own people. He always did, and even with Christ's coming, he did. That he came to his own, and his own wouldn't have him. It says something of how great his faithfulness is, that he keeps on being faithful, even in the light of a sinful response. Firstly. But secondly, it shows not his weakness, but perhaps the depth of sin. What good is your religion, Paul? asks but the second question that's asked here is can a good god really judge us and now paul switches gear a little bit can god really be good in judging us he'll answer this more fully later on in the book in chapter 9 and, and onwards he says but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of god 
what shall we say? Verse 5. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie truth, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Does it? Does our faithlessness show the faithfulness of God? He's taking on the argument that he's begun to develop at the beginning there. To say, well, actually, maybe there's a case to say if us actually turning against God just shows how good God is, then maybe we shouldn't be judged for that because maybe God needs that in order to be shown as being faithful. You see the line of thought. That it shows a contrast very clearly. Our unrighteousness in light of God's righteousness. Maybe there's three things we could say to answer that. That firstly, our unrighteousness is not necessary that it is not best, and that it is not to be celebrated. His righteousness could be seen in so many other ways. Our unrighteousness is not necessary for God's righteousness and faithfulness to be seen. Secondly, our unfaithfulness isn't the best. There are better ways in which his righteousness could be seen, quite frankly, than in that contrast between us. And thirdly, our unrighteousness isn't to be celebrated. Our unfaithfulness is not a reason to suddenly sort of repaint sin as being good because somehow, oh, well, it shows something good about God at least. No, instead, actually, by God's grace, he works in spite of our unrighteousness and unfaithfulness and does then highlight his own righteousness and faithfulness. But it's not a good thing at all. What shall we say? Paul says, how do we make sense of this? And Paul highlights another anticipated wrong response. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Even though we're unrighteous, yes, we're unfaithful, yes. And someone might even, this person that Paul anticipates might even agree with that. But if that actually just serves to highlight the righteousness and the faithfulness of God... And so, in the end, sort of becomes a good thing. Is it really right of him to judge those who do wrong? Isn't it actually something he should be thankful for because it shows how great he is? What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is he wrong to judge what ultimately makes him look good? And some people accuse God of that. Again, Paul says, by no means, let that never be. For then how could God judge the world? You see, the essence of the question asked, anticipated by Paul, really is that the world does not want God to judge them. How could God judge the world then if that's so? Exactly. The world does not want to be judged by God. It wants to judge him. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And here the argument seems to get a little bit fuller as it goes on. It suggests there may well be an actual conversation that Paul has in mind here. This is an actual conversation, an argument he's had back and forwards. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil even, that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. You know, some people have misunderstood Paul and think that because Paul speaks so much about the grace of God, and remember that in the context here of Paul making this uh, very thorough um, and detailed and uh, blunt argument to people, his goal is any temptation that you have to find a sort of confidence and security before God in anything other than the gracious gift of Jesus's righteousness for you, he is going to lay waste to it. And he's done it systematically. Because at the end of it, he wants you to trust instead in God's grace. However, some people have misunderstood him. And misrepresented him and said that, oh yeah, well, what Paul's saying is it really doesn't matter what you do. Again, Paul would say, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that what you do cannot save you. In fact, what you do will only condemn you. Your works will never acquit you before God. They will never measure up to that. They will only ever get you sentenced you must instead trust in his grace to be saved but he is not saying that it doesn't matter about your conduct it does <laughs> this whole argument is to say it absolutely does matter it means that you're facing the just wrath of God revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness from verse 18 of chapter 1 that's been his point but some people have misunderstood him and misrepresented him God can judge and he must judge in fact chapter 3 verse 26 will continue later that that God will be the just and the justifier he will be the judge and the savior to be good he must execute justice on unrighteousness to ask what good is your religion can a good God judge us? But then thirdly, and this is the main part of this section here, he says, can anyone be judged good? And Paul is now moving to his closing statement of his case for the prosecution against humanity and for God. What then? We might say perhaps today just so what then? And he's going to summarize and close the argument he's been making from verse 18 of chapter 1. And it's split in a few sections here. In verse 9, we get the claim. The claim is that sin is a universal problem. It affects everyone, everywhere, and everything. In verses 10 to 18, we get the case that he lays out. And we see the universality of sin in the Old Testament. And think he's still actually particularly speaking, especially to Jews in this moment. And so it's significant that Paul can make his case from the Old Testament and show them that this isn't Paul's sort of novelty, that he's coming up with this message. He's saying, no, this is the message that has always been so. And then he closes off in verses 19 to 20 with an implication that because of this, because sin is a universal problem, and we see it all the way through the Old Testament, nobody can be justified 
by what they do, by their works. Are we, are we Jews, any better off? He's proven previously already that the religious commit the same sins. But will they somehow escape judgment because of their background? Or you could put it another way, actually, because commentators are confused as to what Paul is saying here. Is he saying, are we Jews any better off? Or would a better translation be, are we at any disadvantage? The best answer is that no one really knows how to translate it. But the point is to say that the misunderstanding potentially is to say that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Paul's not said that. There clearly is. Another misunderstanding might be to say there's no benefit to having been a Jew as opposed to a Gentile. And Paul would say no. No, that's not true at all. There is much benefit, much in every way. The point is, Paul is not being anti-Semitic here. He's Jewish himself. But he's arguing that sin is universal. He's having to press the point amongst those who really don't consider or perceive themselves to be sinful. Are we any better off or are we at any disadvantage? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, the same phrase that he's used multiple times in this section, are under sin. So one commentator, Douglas Moo, explains it like this. He says, we have then in this statement Paul's comment on his purpose in this section of his letter. All people who have not experienced the righteousness of God by faith are under sin. That is, they are helpless captives to its power. In verses 10 to 18 here, he shows what is our problem. The problem is that humanity is universally sinful in nature. The world does not want to imagine that. You've heard the words of that article as we began. But you see it throughout pop culture too. To take you back to sort of vintage uh, jukebox here, a song from the animals, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. But don't you know that no one alive can always be an angel? When things go wrong, I seem to be bad. But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. People want to imagine that they're very good. Paul wants to be very clear in telling you no, there's bad news for good people. There are no good people. And so in 10 to 12 here, we're given a summary of the charge against humanity, which will then be evidenced in, in verses 13 to 18. There, says, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None is righteous. And again, the word that Paul uses in the Greek there is important. It's dikaios. It's the same word that Paul uses again and again for this description of the process of coming to faith and being saved is that we are declared legally righteous before God. And Paul's whole argument here is set within a courtroom where he's wanting to condemn humanity on the one hand and then also on the other show you how you would be acquitted through Christ. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And you might think, well, maybe this is just Paul. Maybe just Paul's quite a negative guy, quite a pessimistic uh, fella. But Jesus himself, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, in a conversation with a sort of young Pharisee, 
who asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The problem is that actually our very best attempts aren't good. It's striking that in the Old Testament, and Judges is maybe the greatest example of this as a book, repeated again and again, the worst periods of immorality are prefaced with, they did what was right in their eyes. The worst periods prefaced with real, genuine, sincere attempts to do what was right in their eyes. The bad news is far, far worse than we might want to possibly imagine. Is that our very best efforts are nowhere near enough. And yet, every human, to some extent, has within them some virtuous, some godly qualities. So what do we do about that? What does it, what does it, what does it mean to live as one honouring God, to live right in the world? So in the medieval age, following the theology of Thomas Aquinas, they, they, they have a slogan of saying, do that which is within you. Everybody has, to some extent, some sort of virtuous, godly qualities within. Do that which is within you. And yet, we find ourselves in the same way, doing what was right in our own eyes and failing miserably. Because you see, do that which is within you is a terrible view of justification. It's a terrible view of how you might be saved before God. It's a good view of sanctification, of how you might gradually grow as a Christian believer in the faith and in godliness. But it's a terrible view of how you would be saved. Because what if I keep doing bad things? Doesn't that say that I am doing what's within me? And that what's within me is not good but bad? And how can I possibly have hope to do good if good isn't in me? It's the source of Martin Luther's personal despair. He says, I'm trying, I'm really trying, and yet I'm failing so miserably. All have turned aside. The word literally is shunned God. Together they've become worthless. There's a play with words here that Paul's making. They've turned away, turned aside. They thought that turning away and turning aside from God, they would find life. But they've actually found, and the word there for worthless is turned sour. They've turned aside thinking they would find life. And all that's really happened is they've turned sour. They're good for nothing. No one does good, not even one. Five times in these few verses we're told, no one or none. Because this is a universal problem. And it's holistic. It affects everything. And then look, he makes a shift here in verses 13 to 18. He wants to build his case here. And what we have is a sort of collage, really, of Old Testament references that he puts together. Evidencing sin in speech, in conduct, and in thoughts. You see it in speech in verses 13 to 14. 
in conduct in verses 15 to 17, and thought as well in verse 18. Their throat is an open grave, we're told. is a quote from Psalm 5, verse 9. Human speech has deadly effects. They use their tongues to deceive, quoting Jeremiah 5, 16. That the venom of asps is under their lips, from Psalm 140, verse 3. There's a poison to our words at times. And that we're full of curses and bitterness, quote from Psalm 10, verse 7. It's not that we occasionally slip, it's that our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. It's really more that my act with which I try to contain my real self slips sometimes. And so we have to return to ask, what is our problem then? The article at the beginning, whether you know it or not, doesn't really matter, I suppose. It doesn't add anything to you. But is really simply a reflection of an Enlightenment philosophy from Jean-Jacques Rousseau that has pervaded Western culture for almost a couple of hundred years or so. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in his discourse on inequality, reflects on what is the problem of humanity. He says that men are actually wicked... A sad and continual experience of them proves beyond doubt. But all the same, I think I have shown that man is naturally good. What then can have depraved him to such an extent, except the changes that have happened in his constitution, the advances he has made, and the knowledge he's acquired? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that the human problem is that society, society has caused it, and for him particularly capitalism. If you took away the wicked capitalist system, and particularly his point really is about private property, if you took that element away, people would be good. People are good naturally. The problem is the social conditions. He carries on. It will perhaps be said that society is so formed that every man gains by serving the rest. That would all be all very well if he did not gain still more by injuring them. There is no legitimate profit so great that it cannot be greatly exceeded by what, by what may be made illegitimately. We always gain more by hurting our neighbours than by doing them good. You could really perhaps summarise him in a sentence of saying, we're by nature good, society remakes us bad. But does it? Paul's argument is no. It comes from within. And it comes from Jesus' own words. Again, what is it that makes us dirty? It's not the things outside of us. It's what comes from within us. Their feet are swift to shed blood. He tells us he turns now to conduct. Quoting from Proverbs 1. There's not the sort of pause that you might hope for or expect before violence. They rush to it. In their paths are ruin and misery, quoting from Isaiah 59. It's not the feeling of misery personally, it's that we inflict misery on others. The way of peace they've not known, again from Isaiah 59. And this is all because, and he turns back to the thought life now, there is no fear of God before their eyes, from Psalm 36. It's a damning indictment, as Paul closes his argument. And now he gives a summary statement in verses 19 to 20 here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. And remember, he's been finishing off this section here, addressed primarily, though not exclusively, to the Jews, who've looked at that group of rebellious people and all those sins of 118 to 32 and thought, yeah, you're dead right, Paul. They are wicked. They are unrighteous. Get the boot in there. And then Paul has turned on them and said, well, no, actually, you commit all of the same sins in your religion too. The aim of this whole section has been, as he puts it here, that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable. And the word that he uses there, again, will be no surprise from all the other kind of judicial language that's been used, is to be brought to trial, to be held accountable, to be brought to trial to God. Why so? Why does Paul think that is so significant? Why does he invest such energy in doing this? Verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. We are judged by the law. We're told that by Paul in chapter 2, verse 6. He'll render to each one according to his works. Verse 13, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We're judged by the law. We're judged by works here. But you can't pass that test. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. So the question is, and this is what Paul answers here, well, what does the law do then? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. It shows me how far off I really am. Society doesn't want to see it as this bad doesn't want to imagine that we're really struggling that much. There's uh, a great scene in Monty Python with uh, the Black Knight. And I think it says much of how society tries to deal with this. The Black Knight, the knight's approach him that says, you know, you shall not pass, none shall pass. And then proceeds to, to lose embarrassingly to this other night. One arm is chopped off. He says, oh, it is but a scratch. It is but a scratch. The other arm is chopped off. It's just a flesh wound. It's just a flesh wound. And then the legs are chopped off too and still won't want to give in. We'll call it a draw, shall we? Society, humanity, in light of all of this, still doesn't really want to concede, I don't think. But Paul's case has been made here. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. We might say then at the end of all of this, as Paul has done in verse 1, so what? What do we do about this? that there's a disconnect between any reasonable sort of moral, ethical standard and human performance is indisputable. It's hardly a controversial point, I think, to say that something is wrong in the world. The questions, however, are what 
is it that's wrong? To what extent have things gone wrong? And what do we do about it? Again, to return to Rousseau, who is significant because he shaped much political, philosophical and educational thought on these matters for generations. On this issue of what is to be done, he says, what then is to be done? Must societies be totally abolished? Must meum and tuum be annihilated? And must we return again to the forest to live among bears? Those, in short, who are persuaded that the divine being has called all mankind to be partakers in the happiness and perfection of celestial intelligences, all these will endeavour to merit the eternal prize there to expect from the practice of those virtues, which they make themselves follow in learning to know them. They'll respect the sacred bonds of their respective communities. They'll love their fellow citizens and serve them with all their might. They'll scrupulously obey the laws and those who make or administer them. They'll particularly honour those wise and good princes who find means of preventing, curing, or even palliating all those evils and abuses by which we are constantly threatened. They'll animate the zeal of their deserving rulers by showing them without flattery or fear the importance of their office and the severity of their duty." We could summarise them again much more simply. People are good, but if they work hard, they could be gooder. Good people will make good society. Try harder, be better. He wrote those words in 1755. How has Western culture specifically fared in light of history? After all, this Enlightenment understanding of human nature has been the predominant narrative in Western society. So how have we fared in light of history? Not good. Not good. And I don't think it could be said that not enough time has been given to it, can it? 250 years. Doesn't feel like much progression, does it? History has shown Rousseau's words to be untenable and unfounded and not just unproven, but disproven dogma. Paul teaches us instead, the problem is sin. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The problem is our nature. It is a problem that affects everyone. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It means that, and the hope and the answer to that question of what to do, is to look to Christ. Paul, again, in this section, doesn't want to leave you off condemned and beaten down by the law. He wants to do that to you, but he doesn't want to leave you there. The point of it is to turn you back again to chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, in light of this, in light of the fact that you have no hope in clinging to anything other than Christ before him to be acquitted of your guilt and sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness that you rightly face God's wrath for, that he would be unjust and unloving not to reveal his justice against I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, is gifted to you and to me from faith for faith, beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. Where's the hope? What's Paul's point then in all of this? He wants to lead you to the next couple of verses. But in order to do so, he must very forcibly wean you off any temptation to look anywhere else for your confidence, for your hope. His point is not to end in this section here. But is to make this transition in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's the hope. There's Paul's point. Paul's point is, is not to leave you in a, in a mess on the floor at the end. Aware of your guilt Resting in despair. It's not his point at all. But his point is to leave you in no uncertain terms that you need Christ. You need him. That's where you're to turn. That's where you're to find hope and security and assurance is in him. The righteousness you do not have, he's given you. Everything that you are, he's not. And everything that he is, you now are. That's the hope. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You are set free. Every one of those demands that stands as a condemnation over you, you're acquitted. You're free. You're innocent. If you're in Christ. Let me pray and then we'll sing a closing song together. Father God, as we've laboured through these verses, they're hard, they are heavy, they expose us, they challenge us, challenge the way that we see the world, they certainly challenge the way that the world sees the world, certainly aware that it's a very different narrative to the one that is so often around us. But Lord, I thank you that it doesn't end at that condemnation. That no one by works of the law can be justified before God. That's not where it ends. That is true. And we need to know that and to feel that and to believe that. That nothing that we can do can ever be enough. But... We need to know just as much. But now, a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Our hope is not in our performance, but in your finished work for us in our place. We are unrighteous. But you are righteous and in giving yourself up in our place for us. 
we are set free. And Lord, I pray this morning for every single person who is here, that we will know that in our hearts and our spirits this morning, that we will take comfort and assurance and confidence and strength in those words, that as we perhaps look back on our performance and are dismayed and disappointed and despondent perhaps, that we'll find confidence and assurance in your grace, knowing that you have done everything we have not, that you are everything that we are not, and that you have given that to us. Lord, we thank you that it's a message ultimately not of condemnation, but of consolation, that you have done everything for us, everything we've not lived up to, you've done in our place that we may go free. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would really deeply impress upon us that sense and reliance upon your grace for us this morning, that you've gone to that cross for us, that we might be made new. And now we are no longer condemned, but we are your children. So Lord, be our vision, we pray. Amen.